Father, you are holy. You are glorious beyond description, beyond compare. Majestic in splendor. Clothed with righteousness and unspeakable light. Creator. Sustainer. Author of life, author of faith, perfecter. There's not one atom in the universe that is not under your power and your control and your design and your creation of it. And we think about the billions upon billions upon billions upon billions of galaxies in the universe. And in one little galaxy of the Milky Way, and in one little solar system, in that galaxy, on one little planet or in that solar system, you created beings alone in all of your creation that are made in your image. Who is man? Who are we? That you would think upon us, that you would smile upon us, and yet you have. And yet you have given us life and you've sent Jesus to save us. Though we rebelled against you, though we have sinned against you, though we committed treason against you, we confess our sinfulness. We confess our rebellion. We confess that we either think too much of ourselves in pride. And Father, would You humble us in the thought of Your glory and Your majesty and Your might and Your greatness. And on the flip side, sometimes we think and live with self-hatred. And would You lift us to know that true humility is not thinking less of ourselves, it's just thinking of ourselves less. We thank You for the cross. We thank You that You have sent Jesus to rescue all who would believe. We thank You for the privilege of gathering here today as Your people. We thank You that though we were not a people, You've made us a people through Christ. And you've called us into a holy race, a holy nation, a, a people set apart for your glory. And Father, we ask for those amongst us who are struggling with sickness and disease. Those who have walked through the valley of the shadow of death with loved ones. Or are approaching that. Father, we ask that you would be within comfort very closely the Mosley family. That they would know your presence and feel it even in this tragic, tragic loss. Lord, we pray for the divisions in our country. That you would heal. That any solution people think of, the solution is you. Not the foot of the cross. We're all just different looking sinners in need of the same looking cross. 
Father, we pray for one another. We pray that as we've promised one another, we would live with bearing one another, bearing burdens and then bearing with one another. That we would be slow to take offense and quick to forgive, that we would truly live out the fruits of the Spirit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. As we come now to a time where we're going to open up your word that you wrote, that the Holy Spirit inspired, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illumine it and that we would see what you want us to see, not what we want to see, not what, what you want us to see. And may we not let it just flow in one ear and out the other. May we be impacted, may we be changed so we can walk out of here and represent you, live for you, the glorious King of kings and Lord of lords. In Jesus' name, amen. If you have your Bible, uh, grab it and make your way to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9. Is on page 563 around you. I've got a bit of uh, a, a, a hoarse voice. I was nursing it all last week. Um, and it started about on Monday. So we'll see how long it plays out. This may wind up being a short sermon. Or if it hangs on, we may be in here for a while. So don't know. Um, those, of, uh, those of you who are joining us today, we've been going through the, um, for the first time maybe, we've been going through the book of Luke for a while. We've made our way up to Luke chapter 9. Uh, and just kind of to give you the big picture, Luke was a medical doctor and he was also kind of an investigative reporter. And so he wrote the book of Luke so that uh, dedicated it to a guy named Theophilus, a high ranking Roman official, and wrote it so that we might have confidence uh, that Jesus is who he says he is and that um, uh, th and that he did what uh, he said he did. So he wrote this so that we might have confidence uh, in that we might have certainty concerning the things of Christ. Um, about his person, right, who he is, and his work, what he did, and what he is doing, what he's going to do. And in a lot of ways, you can kind of divide the book up into those two sections. Uh, the first part of it deals with the person of Jesus, who he is, and the second part of it deals with the work of Jesus, what he's done. And so chapters 1 through 9 are really centered in on who is Jesus, the person of Jesus, and then 10 through 24, the work of Jesus, what he did, and what he's doing, and what he's going to do. And so as we come to the end of chapter 9 today, this section that's kind of on what uh, on, on who Jesus is, uh, that, that's really centered in on you know, the person of Jesus, we get kind of like a um, highlight at the end of this section, kind of a highlight on who the person of Jesus is. And we've already seen one a couple of verses earlier than our text, and we covered it a week or two ago. Peter makes a declaration. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ of God. So we already kind of got that highlight, but then today we almost get kind of a celestial amen from God the Father speaking from heaven, saying, yes, this is my son. This is the chosen one. And in doing so, we're going to kind of get a glimpse behind the veil of Jesus' humanity and see who He is. And so it's very much sort of like the inverse of The Wizard of Oz. So if you've seen The Wizard of, the Wizard of Oz, which when I was growing up, it came on once a year. We didn't have VCRs and all that. It's, you know, it came on once a year and I both looked forward to that and dreaded that. Because I looked forward to it because it's a special deal, but I dreaded it because it terrified me. 
It was, I mean, you think about it, you've got these flying monkeys and you've got this witch who's hell-bent on murdering Dorothy. It's a, it's a terrifying movie, especially for a young child. So I, I watched that and it absolutely terrified me. It was kind of a soft-serve Blair Witch Project and wigged me out. <laughs> terrified me. But if you've seen the movie, you know that the, the whole deal is kind of like uh, the Wizard of Oz and, the, and they, they, they get there and they, they see behind the veil that it's just this, this, this man. All right, and they see him for who he truly is. He's not all this stuff that he's planned to be. They see behind the veil, and here's just this little man. And Luke 9 is kind of the inverse of that. It's the inverse of that because when Peter and, and, and James and John uh, see, they get a little peek behind the veil of who Jesus is. They, they see behind his humanity, and they see him in all his glory, in all his splendor, in all his majesty that he's had from eternity past. And that he's going to have for eternity future. And they see him as he truly is unveiled. He's in his humanity. I mean, the miracle of Christmas, you know, he was clothed in flesh and bone. And he was, he was veiled. But they're going to see him as he truly is the reigning and ruling and glorious King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And this glimpse behind this veil, this glimpse of glory that, that they're going to get, we, we refer to it as the transfiguration. One of the other synoptic gospels, Matthew or Mark, speaks of him as being transfigured. That's where that comes, that wording comes from. And that's the section that we have before us this morning. And the way we're going to break it down is we're going to look in, and we're going to talk about what, what we see when we look behind the veil. And then we're going to look at a couple of people or groups of people and learn what, what they teach us about the glory and the majesty of, of, of Christ in the transfiguration. And so let me just kind of read it in full. Uh, we'll make our way through it. I'm actually going to go back to verse 18 so that we kind of pull in um, kind of the flow of this. And, and, and let me ask you to stand for, um, for the reading of God's Word. We're, you're normally already standing, but since we haven't read it yet, I'll have you stand. Verse 18. Page 563. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what is a profit of man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing there who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And they're about to get that glimpse. They're about to see a picture of the kingdom of God. Verse 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John's and James, and went up on the mountain to pray. 
And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but they became fully awake when they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. You guys can be seated. And so number one, if you're taking notes with number one, we're going to talk about a glimpse of glory. A glimpse of glory. So look back at verse 28 again. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with Peter and John and James and went up on a mountain to pray. Probably Mount Hermon. It's about 9,000 feet above elevation, above sea level. And as he was praying, all right, so, so he, he went up on a mountain to pray. And just kind of a, an aside real quick, he probably went up on this mountain, you know why? To escape the crowds. Because here's the way Jesus kind of operated. He, he would pour himself out in ministry, and then he would need to pull himself out of ministry and be recharged and spend time in silence and solitude with his heavenly Father. And like I said, he's kind of about to enter into a new phase of ministry. And every time he enters into a new phase of ministry, he pulls away and he prays. And so just kind of an aside on prayer, if Jesus would pull away and pray and spend time with his heavenly father when he was about to go into any new major phase of ministry or life, how much more should we? Before you're deciding what college you're going to go to, before you're deciding what you're going to major in, before you're deciding who you're going to marry, what career you're going to pursue, before you're deciding what house you're going to rent or buy or lease or any of that, before you're setting a budget, before you're, set, before you're setting anything, before you do anything, pray. Pray about it. Before you do anything. Alright? Let's keep going though. So they come up on this mountain to pray and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. So mockingly, this is where your precious moments Bible turns Jesus into a white man with blonde hair and blue eyes. He's a Middle Eastern people. He's not white. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. What's really happening is the glory starting to show here. They're, they're getting a peek behind the veil and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Big word we'll talk about in a minute, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory. And the two men who stood with him. And so again, number one, we're talking about this glimpse of Christ's glory. 
And what we see Jesus in glory, all right, the glory that he's always had, that he's always existed in as the eternal son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And so when you think of Jesus, don't just think of him as he was when he was on the earth and what we might call his humble incarnation. Think of him also as he is right now. See, Philippians 2 talks about the fact that he humbled himself and became a man. All right. That he um, veiled his power with humanity. He he did not stop being God. He did not stop having uh, all the attributes of God. He just did not avail himself of them. And so the, the miracle of Christmas is that remaining what he was, God, Jesus became what he was not human. So he was fully God and he's fully man. No mixture, fully God, fully Man wrapped himself in flesh and bone and veiled his glory. But here, Peter and the guys, they're getting to see Jesus unveiled. They're getting to see him unveiled and in the splendor of his majesty, in the glory that he as God just intrinsically has. And this this glory, this isn't like an anecdotal detail. The glory of God is one of the biggest themes in all of Scripture. It's who God is. He's glorious. And it's hard to encompass, like, to define the glory of God. Our, human words do not have the capacity to state it. But trying to state it, it it's the idea of, of His splendor, of His beauty, of His magnificence, of His radiance, of His heaviness, of His sovereignty, of His power, of His weightiness, of His prominence, of His preeminence, of His luminescence, of His majesty, of His holiness, His wonder, His awe, His perfection, His worthiness, His supremacy, His honor, His grandeur, His greatness. That, that's the idea of glory. And throughout Scripture, you just see it flowing from every page, the glory of God. But specifically, some of the snapshots that, that this transfiguration kind of alludes back to are like in Exodus 13. You, the, the cloud of glory to lead them by day, lead the Israelites by day as they're fleeing from Egypt and a pillar of fire uh, by night. Exodus 33, Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments for the second time because he had a temper tantrum and broke the first ones. And so he goes back up there and he's in the presence of God and he comes down radiating glory of God. Kind of like a stick that's been in a fire. When you pull it out of the fire, it still glows for a little while. All right, That's kind of like what was going on with Moses. But that's not what goes on with Jesus here. Jesus, Jesus is the fire. The glow and the power and the majesty, the magnificence, the greatness, they emanate from him. He doesn't get them by being close to something. He is the something. Exodus 40, you've got cloud and you've got smoke that enters into the tabernacle. The glory of God enters in. Second Chronicles 7, it enters into the temple. Isaiah 6 that we read earlier. Earlier. I mean, I'll, I'll read the first four verses again. In the year that the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. This is his glory. And the train of his robe filled the temple. This is 
imagery that, that, that he's glorious and he fills every nook and cranny of the temple with glory. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. So they're calling that out to one another. Verse 4, And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. So a couple, uh, you know, Thursday and Friday of this week, I went hiking with my dad and my nephew and my brother. Um, great time to get to see them. Hadn't seen my brother since December. He's been deployed um, and he recently got back. Um, and uh, he, he's a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force and he's flown. Um, he's flying the T-38 teaching pilots, the next crop of fighter and bomber pilots right now, but he's historically flown the B-1 for his whole career. And the B-1 is a big plane. It's got four F-16 engines. That's, that's, that's what makes it fly. And so back in 2001, I had the opportunity to do what's called a busy taxi, which is where um, I climbed up in the cockpit and, uh, and taxied down the runway with them. And then I climbed out of the cockpit and I've got on earplugs, earmuffs, and then I climbed in a Suburban off to the side as they take off. And to, to take off, they, they light the afterburners uh, because it's, it's a big, heavy plane. And when they lit those af afterburners, those four F-16 engines, Sarah was with us. We were in the Suburban. That Suburban started to shake. Like every bolt started to shake. The vibrations of that thing were, I mean, it was so unbelievably loud with earplugs, earmuffs inside a Suburban. So over, just overly loud, just huge noise and, and power and it's shaking everything. And that's, that's kind of what's happening here in verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of Him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And, but these are just seraphim. This isn't Jesus. This is just seraphim. All right? And so these things that have that kind of power, that have that kind of weightiness to them, it says verse 2 that they can't even look upon the Lord. It says that each had six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And so they, they do not, these powerful do not even feel worthy even to leave their feet exposed in the presence of God. They, they cover their things, they, and they won't even look upon God, the splendor of his glory. And so great and good and powerful as these things are, untainted by human sin. They revere their Maker with such great humility and reverence that they won't even look at Him. Or you think of an angel, and every time an angel appears to someone in the Bible, what's the first words out of their mouth? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And so if angels and if seraphim hide in holy fear and reverence from the splendor of God, how much more will we shudder and quake in His presence? I mean, if, if angels who, who terrify us, right, if they appeared, they terrify us because of their overwhelming splendor, if they cannot even look upon God because of His overwhelming splendor and glory, what does that say about us in comparison to the overwhelming splendor and glory of God? 
He is glorious. He is holy, holy, holy. He's the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. He's infinitely glorious. But it's been veiled in His humanity. Not lost, but veiled. But then here, Peter, James, and John, they get a chance to see behind the veil. And we as readers get a chance to see behind the veils. And really, in a lot of ways, what we're seeing is, is, a, is like a, a preview of coming attractions. We're seeing Jesus as He will be when He returns. When He comes again riding on a white horse with the blood of His foes on His robe and, and, and He establishes His public and universal kingdom. So that's the glimpse that they get. But in that glimpse of glory, two other guys show up. Moses and Elijah. And their presence teaches us something. And so look at it with me again. Verse 30. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And so Moses and Elijah, Moses lived 1400 years before Jesus's birth. Elijah lived 900 years before Jesus. Moses wrote the Torah, all right? That's the first five books of, of the Bible. It's called the law. That's what Torah means. It means law. It means instruction. The, other, the Pentateuch, a book of five. We call it Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Okay, so Mo Moses was given the Ten Commandments. So Moses, Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. He's one of the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. And so here, and what you've got almost is, is, is as if the entire Old Testament, the law and the prophets, was standing there saying that everything's coming together in Christ. And so what a Moses and Elijah teaches is that Jesus, and this is number two in your notes, is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah tell us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. I mean, this is what Jesus himself says, Matthew 5, 17. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. And then Luke 24, after his resurrection, he shows up on a seven mile hike to Emmaus with some of his disciples. They've got a little Bible study that they break out right there. And he starts telling them how everything in the Old Testament points to him. You know, that, that he is what the priesthood was all about. He's our mediator. That he is what the temple was all about. He's the presence of God with us. That he is what the sacrificial system was all about. That he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. It's all about Jesus. It's all pointing to Jesus. It's all pointing to his life, his death, and his resurrection through which we're forgiven. Through which the captives, we captives to slave, are set free. The bonds of our slavery is busted. And that's what this word departure in verse 30 is all about. This idea of verse, because the, the, the word in Greek, the, the literal word, I don't have transliterated, the word that's used right there is exodus. Exodus. Now Moses knows about the exodus. But Jesus is telling him about a new and better exodus. That, that, that Jesus would lead the people of God out of bondage and out of captivity to, to sin in, in a new exodus through his death and resurrection. So, so 
Moses has got some, I mean, Moses lived out the exodus of, of the Israelites leaving Egypt. But here he's captivated and he wants to know more about this new and better exodus. They're talking about it. That it's not going to be a temporary freedom from slavery to Egypt, but it's going to be an eternal freedom from slavery to sin. A freedom where right now through faith in Christ, those of you who have trusted Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, you have been set free from the penalty of sin. You do not bear it anymore. And as you grow in Christ, you're being being freed from the power of sin. It's losing its power. But someday when we die and we are with Jesus, we will be free from the presence of all sin. That's what Jesus who is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, has brought to us this glorious and eternal, mighty God, holy, 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 Lord of hosts, from whom seraphim hide their eyes and their faces. He's smiled upon us and He's shown us His kindness and His grace. And He's bore in His body the penalty that we owed for our sin, bringing us a new and better exodus. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. That's what the presence of Moses and Elijah are telling us. But what about Peter? Peter tells us something as well. And so look at verse 32. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, which I think is like their spiritual gift. They're always sleeping. I think some of us in here have that. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And so what, what Peter tells us, here's what, here's what Peter tells us. Peter tells us that we can be wrong. Peter tells us that we can be wrong. We can be wrong theologically. We can be wrong morally. We can be wrong socially. We can be wrong culturally. We can be wrong missionally. We can be wrong fill in the blank. This is another reason why we need the church. There's no me in Christianity. There's no me in disciple. It's inherently corporate. Some are hands, some are feet. Eyes can't say to the ears, I have no need of you. We need one another. It's a team sport. And we need one another because we can be wrong. And we need to have humility to understand I can be wrong. And we need to have humility to search our hearts and always wage war on our sin, being willing to listen to others who are helping to point it out before just automatically putting up a defensive wall and not hearing anything. And Scripture, Scripture is never wrong. Okay, Scripture's never wrong. It's inerrant. It's, it's, it's infallible. It's without errors. It's completely full of all truth. That Scripture is never wrong. It's breathed out by God who cannot lie. All right, so it's never wrong. But we need the humility to, to understand that we, we can get things wrong, and we do so largely a lot of times based upon our own desires separated from Christ. Like we'll co-op the kingdom of God into something that it's not to try to make it fit, you know, an, an Americanized version of your best life now. 
that wasn't a veiled shot. That was a purposeful shot. And we'll also often allow our heritage to influence our theology instead of allowing our theology to influence our heritage and bring truth to error. And so even as those who know the truth, we can still sometimes get things wrong, theologically, morally, socially, culturally, fill in the blank. And Peter here, he had a theological error and he had a missional error. Theologically, he, he speaks of Moses and Elijah and Jesus. And it was built a tent for each of them, kind of echoing this idea of a feast of booths. Let's build a tent for each of them. Um, and by saying that, he's basically saying, treating them like they're co-equals. And remember, Jesus just confessed it. Jesus is, and Peter has just confessed it. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And then right after that, totally misses it. Jesus doesn't have any peers. When Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah, he's not talking to colleagues. He's talking to creatures that he created. But then Peter also has a missional error. He wanted to stay on top of the mountain. He's like, I'm glad that we're here. It's good that we're here. Let's, let's build some tents and let's stay up here for a while. So Peter loved the mountaintop experience that he was having. He, and he wanted it to continue. He wanted to stay up there in isolation with God and avoid the work that Christ had for him. And sometimes in our lives, we'll have like this really powerful um, moment with God. We'll have this mountaintop experience. And then we'll spend maybe even years, uh, trying to like recreate that feeling instead of just being thankful for it and now doing the work that God's called us to. We're just trying to figure out if I can get the music right, if I can find a church that does this and this and this, then I'll maybe just get that feeling back and then be thankful. God did something in your heart, but now get to work with what He's called you to do. Link arms with the body of Christ and be ambassadors for Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, understand that Scripture's never wrong, but you and I can be. And so be humble and be teachable. Be open to correction. And these are not natural things, but they are Christian things. All right, and so Moses and Elijah, they tell us that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law in the Scriptures. Peter teaches us that we can get it wrong sometimes. And let's look now at what God the Father tells us. Verse 34. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. And so verse 34, you've got this glorious cloud enveloping, uh, enveloping them, all right? And again, Old Testament, you reference it's the cloud, the, the smoke, that's the imagery that you've got going on here. This is the, if you've ever heard this word, Shekinah glory, this is just the glory uh, of, of God in this radiant cloud that gave people sort of a, a visible uh, manifestation of His invisible uh, majesty, and so it envelops them and the disciples are scared. It says that they're afraid. 
And then a voice from heaven speaks. And God the Father tells us two things. He tells us that Jesus is His Son, the Chosen One, and He tells us to listen to Him. Alright, two things here. Jesus is the Son, the Chosen One, and that we must listen to Jesus. And so like on that first one, that Jesus is His Son, He is the Chosen One. Okay, when God the Father speaks from heaven, all speculation about who Jesus is is over. He just answered it. He just stated it. An authoritative, all authority, authoritative voice has come forth. Here's who He is. He's my Son. Like Father, like Son. He's the same as me. We are equal. So this is a declaration of divinity, of deity. This is God the Father saying, this is the God-man. He's my chosen one. He's the one in whom you will see what I'm like. He's the one in whom you will see my glory. He's the one who I've chosen to save sinners. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. No one comes to me, the Father, except through Him. And this title of chosen one, again, goes back to the Old Testament. We see in Psalms, the first reference to David, and then also we see it in the book of Isaiah where God says in chapter 42, verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. As we keep reading throughout the book of Isaiah, we discover that God's chosen one is a chosen servant, a suffering servant who will offer his life as a sacrifice for God's people. He'll be wounded for their transgressions. He'll be crushed for their iniquities. His soul will make an offering for their sins so that they can be counted righteous by God. That's Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus shows up. And so in a lot of ways, what's happening here is God the Father is giving a celestial amen that Jesus is the Christ. And what Peter had declared eight days earlier, that He is the long-awaited promised rescuer of the Old Testament, that He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets that Moses and Elijah were telling us, that He's one, he's one who's come to live a perfect, sinless life in our place because none of us have. And then willingly lay that life down in our place as our substitute to pay the penalty that we owe for our sin. Jesus paid it in our place. And then rise again to give us forgiveness of sin and eternal life to all who will repent and believe. This is who Jesus is. Glorious, holy, 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 and yet became a man and lived and died, faced everything you face, faced everything I faced, and he lived and he died in our place for our sins. And as such, we are to listen to him. And when God the Father is saying that, I mean, this thing's loaded with, I could preach for six weeks on this, this this thing's loaded with Old Testament imagery. When He says, listen to Him, God the Father's calling us again back to the Old Testament where Deuteronomy 18, God says to Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Jesus is the new and better prophet. He's the new and better Moses. And to listen to him is to hear the very word of God, the voice of God. And so this word says, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Underline that. Circle it, highlight it, whatever you got. 
underline that. Listen to Him. Don't listen to Satan. Don't listen to false teachers. Don't listen to false religions. Don't listen to half-truths. Don't pick and choose from the Bible. Don't listen to the world. Don't listen to your preferences. Listen to Jesus. The Lord Jesus. Lord of hosts. Holy, holy. Listen to Him. How do you do that? You read the Bible. You see, many of us would have the, many of us would be like, if I could have just been there. If I could have just been there like Peter was and like James was and like John was. If I could have just seen these things. If I could have seen this transfiguration and this glory, if I could just have experienced that, if, if I could have seen Moses and Elijah and asked them questions, Moses, man, what was it like when the Red Sea parted and, and Elijah, what was this, you know, this, this, this um, sweet chariot that you rode on, you know, that swung low? What, what was that all about? And, 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 and fire came down and consumed when you were fighting against the priests. Uh, of Baal under King Ahab. Tell me about that. If, if we could just experience that. If we could have asked questions. If we could have shaken their hands. If we could have seen Jesus just radiating glory and then hear God the Father speak from heaven. If, if we could have just been there, then I would trust Jesus. I, I just, if I had that experience. But then listen to this. Second Peter chapter 1. All right? This is Peter who did experience all that. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father and the voice was born to Him by the majestic glory, this is My beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. That's the way it's put in Mark and Matthew, um, the part that we read where it says chosen one. We ourselves, listen, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven for we were with Him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. And so what's happening here is Peter's like, listen, if you want to know what it was like, I was there. I was on the holy mountain. I saw the transfiguration. I heard the voice from heaven. I saw Moses and Elijah talking with him. I've seen all of this. But better than that, we've got something better than that. We've got something more confirmed than that. We've got something more sure than that. More, more confirmed and more sure than what? Than of his own firsthand experience, his own eyewitness account, something more sure than, than seeing, like being there and seeing Jesus in his glory with his own eyes. What is it that's more sure than that? And we have the prophetic word. The word of God is more sure than the first-hand experience. Peter's saying, my first-hand experience was, was tainted by my own sinfulness, but the Word of God is untainted by anything. It is more sure. The Bible is better. This is crazy. The Bible is better than a first-hand experience. It's crazy. We have a prophetic word more fully confirmed. Listen to this. To which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, 
Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. See, the world is filled with darkness. But the Word of God is filled with glory. And it changes us. And it causes us to, to radiate out pieces and, and, and flashes of the glory of God as we love and as we pursue justice and mercy and walk with compassion and generosity. And we live in all ways and in all things for the glory of God. Because He alone is truly glorious. He's supreme over all things. He's high and lifted up. And so don't just think, don't, don't just think as Jesus as He was in His humble incarnation. Think of Jesus as He is in glory. He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. He is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. He is the Son of God. He is the chosen one. Listen to Him. Let's pray. Father, give us boldness to stand upon Your Word as the final arbiter of all things. And give us humility to understand that apart from Your Word, we can be and often are errant. And give us humility to check ourselves and check our lives against Your Word, against the totality of Your Word. And Father, as we prayed at the beginning, when we are tempted to fill ourselves with pride and think highly of ourselves because of accomplishments or because of this or because of that or any other thing, humble us. We are small, small, seemingly insignificant creatures on a small planet in a small solar system in a small galaxy. But then when we turn to self-loathing, pick us up to understand that we alone have been made in your image. And even though we've rebelled against you, you have chosen to send Jesus to rescue all who would repent and believe the gospel. And so, Father, for those who are self-loathing, would you pick them up today? For those who are prideful, would you bring them low today? And for those who do not yet know you, would you save them today? And would you fill us all with reverential awe and wonder at your holiness? That we get just a peak of, just a glimpse of glory as we look behind the veil. But someday, someday we will all behold and willingly bow or be forced to bow. All will bow. Work in us. In Jesus' name, amen.